Believe it or not, you're listening to another episode of The Plunge. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at plunge underscore podcast. Coming up, we have quick hits on Stormy Daniels, Cynthia Nixon, and the Kushner organization. Then we will survey the worst of the countless attempts by baby boomers to co-opt, distort, and even disparage the message of the young organizers of the March for Our Lives rally. In pop culture, we have Armando Yanucci's The Death of Stalin, CBC's Undercover Bosses, and a review of the first episode of Barry, Bill Hader's murderous new comedy on HBO. As always, we will close out with a classic story from the vaults. This is The Plunge. So, as we record this, we are just a few days removed from... What was apparently 60 Minutes on CBS's greatest ratings in over a decade. This was Stormy Daniels, and people didn't just uh, skip to five minutes in, and uh, they were watching the whole thing. Yeah, people wanted to hear everything she had to say, and she had a lot to say that I feel like we all could have seen coming. (laughs) And that includes President Trump. He had unprotected sex with this porn star, and she detailed some rather frightening uh, encounters that involved a man threatening her and her child. Yeah. Sam, what do you think of this conspiracy theory that potentially that child was fathered by Trump? (laughs) It, I think there's a certain school of, like, folksy thought that in order f- to conceive, the sex has to be, like, pretty good. And she really didn't launch into that. She seemed to, like, she seemed to characterize his uh, abilities as a lover as somewhat subpar. It was very Weinstein-esque, though. It was, she went into the bathroom, I think she said, and she came out and he was, like, nude on the bed. And she re- she repeated the line from like the initial interview way back that prompted this whole thing, saying, "Oh, here we go again," which is once again, as I said at the time, heartbreaking. Well, I think he suggested that she could get a role on The Apprentice on NBC, which would certainly have boosted her profile. No, but no, exactly. That's what I'm now, saying. Is like I- like you brought up Harvey Weinstein. It's like she they assumed their places in the supposed hierarchy, right? Like they just kind of were like, yeah. "This is what we happens here." Powerful, rich fucking man with this woman who's trying to build a, a career in entertainment. Like we know where this ends up. <laughs> However, just the image of Trump dropping trow and her just slamming his ass with like a magazine with his face on it. She said it was playful, but still, I mean, I, if if it was me, I would have I would have gone whole hog. This is me at the podcast saying I would have slapped the shit out of Trump's sweet cheeks. And folks, you're listening to the plunge. 
It's the plunge, and those cheeks would have been redder than Rudolph's nose. Let's it's true. play a clip from Anderson Cooper and Stormy Daniels to set the stage a little more, because I feel like once you, you kind of hear her talk, she's likable as hell, great. I think. Well, she's wouldn't wonderful. You agree? Very well. I mean, it's it's kind of like annoying that people have been like, oh, she's so well-spoken. But uh, yeah, she is. I mean, she's a... She isn't, it works in entertainment. She knows how to entertain and how to be on fucking camera and do the thing. So roll the clip. So I was like, does this, does this normally work for you? And he looked very taken, taken back. Like he didn't really understand what I was saying. Like, I was just, you know, talking about yourself normally work. And I was like, someone should take that magazine and spank you with it. And I'll never forget the look on his face. And he was what, like, what was the look? Just, I don't think anyone's ever spoken to him like that especially, you know, a young woman who looked like me. And uh, I said, you know, give me that. And me, I remember going, you wouldn't. Hand it over. And uh, so he did. And I was like, turn around, drop him. You told Donald Trump to turn around and take off his pants? Yes. And did he? Yes. So he turned around and pulled his pants down a little. You know, he had underwear on and stuff. And, and I just gave him a couple swats. Well, she's getting sued, and she's countersuing Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer, for defamation. And it was also implied in this interview that this could potentially count if the payoff was from Michael Cohen related to the campaign, then it could count as an illegal campaign contribution because it's way more money than you're allowed to give as an individual. What do you make of all that? Huge, if true. <laughs> that was the uh, epic bacon moment. <laughs> Speaking of bacon, we've been, you know, late because I've been, like, holed up in the office really late every now and then, or these days. And there's been a new app that's been marketed towards us. I think this is popping up in other, like, office parks and urban sprawl office areas. And it, as far as I can tell, this thing's called Foodsbee. And it's sort of like a Grubhub thing, but the big selling point on it is that it's you'll never pay more than a dollar ninety nine for your max for your delivery fee. But wait, also you'll never tip. Like, <laughs> so it's the old Uber model. I guess so. Yeah, it is sort of like that. But the menu prices for the items don't change. So basically the restaurant bears the hit, not only in the terms of if they have a delivery fee higher than that, they have to reduce it to $2. Also, Foodsbee generates revenue by taking a slice of the sales. And then they also have to basically pay their drivers enough so that they don't mind not getting tipped, apparently. And I, I don't see what the restaurant gets out of it other than exposure to like strict. It says on the FAQ uh, in quotes, like strictly business professionals <laughs> like yours truly, of course. <laughs> so maybe they're hoping for large office orders or just that they hook individuals into making it just a daily part of their lives because they're too exhausted and worn down by life to yeah. make lunch. Well, obviously, they don't want you to leave the office, which is why you would get it delivered. And this is supposed to be appealing to the, I guess, the uh, owners. You're just like a fucking gerbil just sucking <laughs> the one faucet. Exactly. And also, I think it's just like, you're a restaurant. You need business, right? You better start fucking cutting your prices. Like, if you want to get your name out there, if you want that exposure, then you're going to have to make less per order because that's how you fucking hustle under the gig economy. So, next, it's Cynthia 
Nixon. Let's play a clip. I'm a proud public school graduate and a prouder public school parent. I was given chances I just don't see for most of New York's kids today. Our leaders are letting us down. We are now the most unequal state in the entire country with both incredible wealth and extreme poverty. Half the kids in our upstate cities live below the poverty line. How did we let this happen? So Sam, if Cynthia Nixon, and I don't know if we even said this yet, she's running for governor against Andrew Cuomo. If Cynthia Nixon were to win this primary, she would be New York's first female and first openly gay governor. She also has the distinct advantage over Cuomo of not being a blood-sucking, like, ghoul. (laughs) Can I read a quote from her great interview, which we will attach from Glamour magazine? Go for it. Glamour says, you've talked a lot about better Democrats and real Democrats. What does a real Democrat mean to you in 2018? A real Democrat doesn't slash taxes on the wealthy. A real Democrat doesn't slash corporate taxes. A real Democrat doesn't give away billions of dollars in economic development money to his cronies and his donors with no strings attached. A real Democrat doesn't lose us $25 billion in revenue in eight years. Money our state desperately needs to put into our schools, our transit system, and our public housing. The fact of the matter is our working class doesn't look like the working class from 1955. Our working class is largely women and people of color. It's people like social workers and daycare workers, people who run senior centers and after-school youth programs, and people who work in schools. We need to fund those things. We need to fund those things because we need those services. We also need to protect the people who are doing those jobs and make sure there's $15 minimum wage, not just in the city, but in every part of the state. I think it's awesome that people have been like, liberals say that they're upset because Trump is a fucking celebrity, but now they want Cynthia Nixon. I'm like, I, you you really at that point, some people are so divorced from the idea that people aren't just identities, that people have like things to say. Like you could read what she just said and be like, that's a good fucking thing. I mean, if tr- ostensibly, if like Trump had said that and could have meant it with any sincerity, we might be on his side. But with Cynthia Nixon, it's a lot more sincere, obviously, because she's not a fucking demon like he is. And she has a history of activism and advocacy. She's been involved in politics before. It's not like totally alien to her. There is also the possibility that even if she doesn't win this primary against Cuomo, she could potentially compete against de Blasio for the mayor of New York City in the future, which is a completely different job, but I'd love to see a more progressive person than both of those guys in either of the positions. But it, it was really funny because, did you know there was some centrist liberal pouncing on Bernie Sanders over this, specifically in what I read People like Sadie Doyle shared this part of the interview where she she said, our working class is largely women and people of color. They were like, Cynthia Nixon does what Bernie Sanders couldn't do in two years. You know, I I think there is like a grain of truth. I think there's a truth to the idea that like Bernie didn't necessarily have. I mean, we've obviously debunked the Bernie bro narrative on this show before, but Bernie did maybe lack a certain tact with talking to certain communities that liberals have been kind of good at faking for a long time, centrist liberals. So 
I kind of see there's maybe a tiny grain of truth, but if you look at like what he actually says, he does bring in women in POC. He also has his support is largely consists of that group. And I, I don't, I don't, it's just dumb that everything's a zero sum game. Like Cynthia Nixon did this. Why couldn't Bernie have been exactly like her or said just what she said right now so that I could comment on it. But specifically, Cynthia Nixon seems to be interested in targeting the transit system, which if you live in New York City, you know it's been awful for a while now. If you want to appeal to people, go hit, go in on their commutes, man. The Dan- right, Danica Rome. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Danica Rome in PWC around the here. The trans metalhead. Yeah, yeah tr- she's like the front woman of a death, not death, but thrash metal band that is popular in the area. And she just campaigned on what people care about. And what people care about right here is how long their commutes are. So that's this is how you do the business. That's how you do politics. And Cynthia Nixon just, you look at not just the transit, she talks a lot about, like, the income inequality, the need for, like, public housing, and, I don't know, she seems just like a way better messenger on these things than Cuomo, I don't care if she has no political experience, totally, totally a Cynthia man. And also, like I said earlier, I mean, that that accusation that she knows nothing about politics is kind of bullshit. Just because she doesn't have experience, she has been active in, like, fighting for public funding for fucking schools over the past, like, 17 years. She said literally since her oldest kid in kindergarten. And clearly you could see that as, like, a self-serving thing. But also, this lady doesn't need to pay. She can can pay for the damn, like, private school or move out of New York. She's not constrained by the same thing, but she knows that it's important. And it's something that she's been doing for a long time time i don't know why you need to get down on her if she's someone who agrees with us in general oh and cynthia nixon additionally had more small donors in her first 24 hours than cuomo in his last seven years (laughs) uh dan you're also a big uh sex in the city fan aren't you i genuinely have enjoyed much of that program and um are, oh, so are right. you a Miranda or, or, or do you have a different, you have a different sex in the city gal? I, I, I'm a Charlotte man. You're myself, Charlotte. But... Okay, cool. I'm just glad we have that out there for the listeners. But speaking of maybe the Charlotte of the Trump administration, <laughs> just kidding. I don't know anything about sex in the city, but we do know about John Bolton, this new, the sec, the fucking, He's the companion. He's this hawkish fucking George W. Bush guy who now is going to be... For all my sex in the city heads, he's totally a Samantha. (laughs) Okay. She just fucks everyone. Okay, cool. That's true. That's a good analogy. Uh, Anyway, John Bolton, former George W. Bush appointee. Now he's going to be serving in that sweet fucking job, that fucking Trump national security advisor shit. And that's something that he doesn't even need to be confirmed for, I think. Right. This is not someone to take lightly. It is not Michael Bolton. (laughs) I keep getting it mixed up with Michael Bolton. I was so worried I was going to say Michael Bolton on this show. So what can we say about John Bolton? He is a Islamophobic, hawkish... 
he wants what's this thing with north korea he wants to just like blast them yeah he said it's perfectly legitimate for the united states to respond to the current necessity posed by north korea's nuclear weapons by striking first he wrote in february 2018 <laughs> like a month oh. ago <laughs> Trump heard that he's like this is this guy's talking my language <laughs> he's a fucking walrus he's got like a broomstick mustache yeah he's the companion to someone else we talked about on the show the sam clovis the agriculture guy who also looked like a walrus but john bolton is like a skinnier walrus he's fucking hideous he keeps wanting to bomb iran as well he said the inescapable conclusion is that iran will not negotiate away its nuclear program, nor will sanctions block its building abroad and deep weapons infrastructure. The inconvenient truth is that only military action, like Israel's 1981 attack on Saddam Hussein's Osirak reactor in Iraq, or its 2007 destruction of a Syrian reactor, can accomplish what is required. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We're doomed, and, you know, it's going to be these, like, strange Lovian creatures who lead to our demise. Yeah, lots of lots of game theory. But speaking of game theory, you attach a story about the other Shady Kushner. Mostly for the photo, I think Jared Kushner's brother, Joshua Kushner, is equally hideous. I always appreciate the reporting of Ryan Grimm. And this was just the story about Joshua Kushner met with government of Qatar to discuss financing in the same week his father, Charles Kushner, did. And this all had to do with the piece of shit, piece of property, 666 Park Avenue, because, of course, Jared Kushner can't sell a fucking building numbered 666. (laughs) This property's just been hanging over Jared for some time now. Yeah. <laughs> it's been an and He's albatross. like an immense fail son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I keep thinking that maybe there's like a curse on it or something. Like maybe it's haunted or something. I, I think I, I search for a supernatural answer because people have been positing that somehow Trump's presidency is going to mean that Kushner is going to like without a doubt, sell this building. But it's been fucking, like, a year. And <laughs> he still can't sell this shit. People were worried that he was gonna let, Trump was going to, like, change the immigration code so that Jared could bring in a bunch of, like, Chinese investors and shit. I was like, no, he's fucking not. <laughs> and that still has not materialized. All this shit is, like... I, <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's the best thing since sliced bread was how one source summarized Kushner's pitch. <laughs> noting that he played up the location of the property, the quality of the anchor tenant, the major tenant in a building who forms the bedrock of the cash flow, and the ability to add an extra floor of retail. (laughs) You never heard of a thing like this, a building in old Manhattan. So apparently the debt that they owe on that shit is like $1.2 billion dollars on the uh on the kushner cup i mean i'm no fucking big corporate finance guy i'm not sure that number i'm reading off of washington post really means in material terms but it's still fucking funny no literally what's the over under on if trump faces actual legal shit that kushner is one of the first people to just get thrown in front of the bulldozer 
Well, I would say maybe Donald Trump Jr. goes down first, but I think Donald Trump Jr. is involved in maybe slightly less, like, greasy money issues than, like, Jared Kushner is. So, I don't know. It's, like, it's it's anyone's guess at this point. I don't think that we can rely on the government to follow any logic or, you know, rely on our ability to predict anything about what's going to happen next. There's going to be so many awful fucking tell-alls. Oh yeah, there's gonna be a like more book deals formed in the a- aftermath of this. It'll support like a small economy, then it'll turn to a bubble and uh, some other. You know, then there'll be like a full on like recession of shitty book deals where just no one's handed a book deal for like twenty years because there's like a glut of just horrendous Trump era books. <laughs> there's gonna be an Omarosa book, a Stormy <laughs> Daniels book. I know. The cliched thing about it being a reality show is uh, pretty easily applicable here, but I think this is kind of just, uh, you know, the hyper-normalization thing. Like, this is kind of just how it is going to be forever. You know, we're we're in this forever. Yeah, I mean, mean, to to normalize something is not to, like, take it for granted or think it's a good thing. It's just, it is normal, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) Speaking of uh, another kind of this-is-not-normal situation, we're talking about... The, in terrible takes, all of our takes are going to center around the reaction to the March for Our Lives protest. Now, we don't think that these kids are wrong in what they're uh, advocating for with the March for Our Lives, but some of these takes that uh, emerge out of this from the just moronic, I don't know, what would you even call this wing of people? Old people. It's all baby boomers. Yeah, baby, the boomers. It's all baby okay. Boomers. Sorry, all baby boomers listening to this. It's you guys. It's all you. It's on the left. It's definitely way more intense on the right because they're more wrong. But I think in general we should maybe talk about some of the good things, the historic stuff about this march. Basically, about a million people in the U.S. turned out for the message that the gun situation in the u.s is a fucking disaster and that kids are being mowed down at school and we take it for granted that we just have like you know ten thousand people die of gun homicides in the country every day every year well and i think they're very they're well they do they do a very good job of articulating also the the amount of lobbying that plays into the amount of uh the gun industry contributes directly to these politicians who then don't change the laws yeah no and i think they've done a good job and they've really done i mean some serious speaking truth to power we all saw you know marco rubio fucking swallowing his tongue and like spit and snot during that cnn (laughs) town hall (laughs) <laughs> and and also, I mean, something that The Guardian pointed out in an article and other sources that these white suburban kids from Parkland, Florida, and the concerned moms that are turning out for this, they are kind of giving a little bit more space, at least during this, some of the speeches that they had in different cities. There were a lot of city organizers from like Chicago groups. There was someone from uh, Los Angeles' Community Coalition, a lot of like people of color, a lot of like girls. Um, there was that 11-year-old girl in Alexandria, Virginia, who had that like very me- moving and memorable speech. Me and my friend Carter led a walk out at our elementary school on the 14th. We walked out. We walked out for 18 minutes, adding a minute to honor Cortland Arrington, an African American girl who was the victim of gun violence in her school in Alabama after the Parkland shooting. I am here today to represent Cortland Arrington. 
I am here today to represent Hadia Pendleton. I, I am here today to represent Tiana Thompson, who at just 16 was shot dead in her home here in Washington, D.C. I am here today to acknowledge and represent the African-American girls whose stories don't make the front page of every national newspaper. And all of this is great stuff, and there's maybe a little bit of a hijacking of this by, like we said, you know, white boomer, like, liberals to make this all about gun control, which... Yo, and also, what the, what the fuck is, like... So they're not millennials because they're saying, like, God, yeah. fuck those lazy millennials. They never would have done. Aren't they millennials, too? Like, I'm, I'm, I don't even get it No, this they, point. They, they, I think generations move more quickly now. <laughs> I think, like, the kids who are like, these kids are, like, we're in our 20s. These kids are, like, maybe, like, nine, less than 10 years younger than us. So they're not that far away from us in years, exactly, like, like you said. But... I think white liberals have made this a lot, or just in general, centrists have made this about gun control, which when solving the issue of guns in the United States and moving towards disarmament is not, gun control is a tool to achieve that, but gun control is not that end in itself, if that makes sense. Right, it's a, it's more about changing maybe the culture than the laws. Sure, or also going after like the kind of kind of like you said, the industry behind it as well. And I think that's a more of a salient critique. But when Dan, we know some good left wing arguments against gun control. Obviously, it doesn't. It's kind of shaped in mind for situations in which a maniac shows up to a school full of white kids and like guns a bunch of people down because that's what scares parents and gets them out. Uh, or it scares the people who are like kind of these annoying movers and shakers on this. And I think that yeah, there's an implicit comes... uh, there's an implicit trusting of law enforcement, right? Yeah, there was that really heinous stipulation that apparently with, disarm- like, the, with disarming. They have had more of a discussion of like this argument about police disarmament in with like the March for Our Lives debate, but in general, like we saw that. Did you see that stipulation where they wanted like law enforcement to work with mental health professionals and stuff? People were seeing that as ableist, as like exposing vulnerable communities to the police. And I'm not saying that like, these kids are going to have perfect politics at this age. Like if you'd asked me about my politics when I was a teenager, it wouldn't have been pretty at all. So they need time to develop. And but in general, I think we can agree that there's it's a more salient critique of gun culture in the U.S. than we've seen in a little while, definitely. So what specifically about the boomer perspective was really getting on your nerves? Um, definitely specifically, like you said earlier, as the far as a left-wing boomer perspective, the thing that's been annoying is the idea that our generation didn't do anything and we just complain all the time and are lazy. I remember seeing one post about like, these kids actually believe in electoral politics. And I was like, well, well yeah, cause they haven't voted yet. <laughs> They're 17. Also like they grew up in this like hyper fucking, like how often is Trump mentioned? Like, it was never like this before. Yeah, if you're a kid at 17 and you think, wow, I'm going to turn 18 next year and I can vote, and there's this guy we really that no one seems to like, and for some re- somehow he got in, what if people just hadn't voted for that guy and they had voted for the other guy? It's like a very easy thought process, and I, I think uh, it's unfair for people to put words in their mouth so much to make this so much about gun control when we can see that the kid's natural instincts is to be inclusive of people in other communities communities for whom gun control is not really going to be the end it's going to be like it's not going to really apply to their situation well sam thank god for blue mountain school district superintendent david helsel (laughs) (laughs) 
Every class, uh, you know what? I'm not even going to read it. Let's play the audio. Every classroom has been equipped with a five-gallon bucket full of Riverstone. If an armed intruder attempts to gain entrance to any of our classrooms, they will face a classroom full of students armed with rocks, and they will be stoned. So, Sam, if you had a bucket of rocks, could you stop a school shooting? Yeah, like, uh, it's a real, it's literally a David and Goliath situation. Because the person's going to be like an adult (laughs) or someone else with a fucking AR-15. And you're going to have a bunch of children with rocks throwing. There was one, the the part that really stuck with me was the, they will be stoned. (laughs) I was thinking more like a throwing star. (laughs) Yeah, Shuriken would be much more useful in this situation. They're at least lethal. I think you can get hit with a rock and live. But if you're like ripped apart with like a fucking rifle bullet, I don't think it's gonna. I don't think that's gonna fly. Well, thank God for CNN fucking pays Rick Santorum for salient observations about politics. He obviously is the former GOP senator from Pennsylvania, ran for president. He said, "How about kids? Instead of looking to to someone else to solve their problem." Do something about maybe taking CPR classes or trying to deal with situations so that when there is a violent shooter, you can actually respond to that. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) So, number one, Rick Santorum is the GOP primary equivalent of, like, the first guy in Star Wars who gets blown up by, like, a TIE fighter. Like, he's just, like, a fucking throwaway Republican. Yeah, he's no, he doesn't have a job like you said. He's just, I don't know why he's even talking about this. But of course he comes in with this bullshit well, about no, how no, like... no, no, this is important. CNN pays him to do these awful fucking takes in the name of like being fair. Oh, God. <laughs> he's a paid contributor. Oh, my God. That's heinous, man. That's like the fucking Kevin D. Williams thing with the Atlantic. But either way, the fucking CPR thing is preposterous. The idea that these kids would be like, like just performing CPR doesn't, you know, resuscitate people who have been like shot by cut, like who are like losing blood. <laughs> the problem is not that their heart isn't bumping. Blow air into the lungs of someone who's disemboweled by an AR-15. People have made the gross take that Rick Santorum just wants to see like kids putting them, their mouths on one another. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, what about the NRA TV host who said, I'll just, I'll read the quote. He said, to all the kids from Parkland getting ready to use your First Amendment to attack everyone else's Second Amendment at your march on Saturday, I wish a hero like Officer Blaine Gaskill had been at Marjorie Douglas High School last month because your classmates would still be alive and no one would know your names because the media would have completely and utterly ignored your story the way they ignored his and That's... that guy who they mentioned was a Maryland high school resource officer who shot and killed the armed student during a shooting in Maryland. Yeah, in Great Hills, Maryland. And the governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, who is a Republican, came out and said, like, this is an example of what we want to see. And I was like, motherfucker, he's looking at a situation in which a school resource officer had to shoot a guy who had already shot, like, two people. Sam, don't you understand? That's a fucking win! Uh, like, that's the best case scenario. Like, that's what you... Like, don't you think, ideally, no one no one in your school should be shooting one another? I, I mean... 
It's just mind-boggling that these people think that this is just like how things are, that any attempt to regulate or mitigate the situation would put us on the road towards, you know, boomers either think the kids protesting are gonna like save the United States in our democracy or that they're trying to like burn the fucking constitution. It's also just a stupid like self-owned by like NRA TV. You're saying that nobody would know your names if your classmates were alive so yeah this person shouldn't have had a fucking gun (laughs) you just proved their points anyway yeah so that was colion noir colon noir who we're gonna get into with the killer mike video later but i also loved this video that you attached from nra tv of that one guy just like fucking quaking (laughs) because david hogg was like i'm sick of these fucking guys defending these fucking people who are shooting these kids and the the guy was like oh my god like oh my god he used such vile language (laughs) like he dropped like three f-bombs and this guy on nra tv fucking losing it i have a question well reporters asked the young man a parkland survivor who inserted himself into this national debate on guns about a recent twitter video rant he went on it is profanity laced and about as harsh as you can get i want you to hear some of it do you think what sick f-ers are out there that want to continue to sell more guns murder more children and honestly just get reelected? Where, what type of person are you when you want to see more money than children's lives? How, what type of person does that? Well, let me be clear. I would never want to censor what that young man has to say. It is his right. I may ask, where are his parents? I wouldn't let my son talk like that, not at 8, not at 17. But censoring isn't up to us. Yet it's them who want to censor our voice on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, Roku, so many other places. So as they call for boycotts over us for simply speaking the truth from the heart, will anyone boycott tomorrow's march over David's comments? Will Oprah and George Clooney denounce his hate? 60 Minutes was about the president, like, jizzing. Stop with your fucking, like, family values. Nonsense. It's over. It's over. It's so funny. You can say fuck now. He's also talking about a, a shooter. How desensitized are we to this? He's talking about the situation in which, like, his fucking classmates were, like, ripped to shreds in front of his very eyes. And the guy's like, do you have to use profanity, sir? <laughs> like, Jesus. It just shows the NRA TV attitude is kind of taking this victim-y stance, like we have said in the past. Even though they have all this fucking, like, capital and power, their propaganda strategy is to portray themselves as, you know, the polite ones. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, uh, speaking of politeness and showing fairness to the other side. (laughs) Yeah, this is a a real mess. I love Run the Jewels. I thought Killer Mike was a great surrogate for Bernie Sanders. Not surrogate, if not just, you know, vocal uh, supporter, and he definitely campaign for him a lot killer mike uh, obviously a rapper from atlanta also an entrepreneur i believe he owns uh, barbershops in atlanta he's affiliated with the you know the dungeon gang like outcast and those guys so he went on nra tv in a pre-taped interview and presented his rather like it's a stance he's been vocal about in the past that he doesn't believe that gun control is good Right. And in the past, he has relied on sort of ideas of like black self-defense and self, you know, community policing and things that like 
are there there like we said earlier there is a strong left case against gun control and i think it was very ill placed for him to go on the nra to talk about his very salient critique of gun control because he's doing it from a left-wing black perspective and the nra is not trying to hear that they're playing him i think they cut a lot from his interview too if you look at it it seems like really choppy and odd and it it came to me it came off to me like he claims that they like took his words out of context doesn't really solve the problem of the fact that he he should not have gone on that platform because the NRA is not a really a like a guns rights organization it's more of like a fucking like white nationalist militia sort of like what we've been talking about on this show so if you take him at his word right he said you can't continue to be the lackey. You're a lackey of the progressive movement because you've never disagreed with the people who tell you what to do. Now, if you take that statement in isolation, right, I agree with that. I think our biggest critique of, like, centrist Democrats is they never question the Democratic Party. But I think in before that, Kalyan Noir, Colin Noir, was, like, kind of... Egg, getting him into the i think colin noir is like a weirdly underappreciated like secret weapon of the nra like he's a young he's in his like late 20s um but i think he's a young like uh like black guy from texas and he argues in favor of gun rights but it's never it, like he doesn't allow killer mike to bring up the kind of salient critique of you know of gun control he kind of like eggs him into this these weird like places where remember when he was got uh where killer mike was shouting like this isn't wakanda and stuff like that like they had guns in wakanda or something right and right he kind of like, does the, the folksy like uh, if you walk out you can walk out of this house like yeah i do wonder if the more you know harsh critiques from killer mike were cut I, I genuinely kind of I, I kind of think they it's my just weird theory honestly I mean I have no reason to think this but I think that they that Col, that Colin Noir like kind of is he's doing a very skillful act in kind of elucidating like what he wanted Killer Mike to say I mean not that we should take away like like Killer Mike probably did think he was maybe he thought he was doing a something like a, a genuine you know reaching across the aisle but it's hard to not know what the nra stands for especially for you know especially given like where his politics lie uh let's play a clip right here from killer mike's apology that he posted on uh twitter and instagram my interview with said organization who we all don't agree with was supposed to be something that continued a conversation and that conversation is about african-american gun ownership it was not in contrast to your march it was done well a week before your march it should never have been used in contrast to your march and i think it's wrong to the young people that worked tirelessly to organize i'm sorry adults chose to do this sorry NRATV did that i'm sorry that adults on the left and the right are choosing to use me as a lightning rod what i want to encourage you guys to do is keep organizing so i think he addresses that his interview was kind of used out of context and i don't know it seems like a pretty honest apology and he seems to have real solidarity with the march and the activists and seems to kind of agree and lp also came out in defense of mike and uh said that they you know uh, even though they don't agree on everything he's a good guys i that's never been up for dispute uh, in this debate, it's just like, should he have gone on the show uh, on NRA TV? It's not great. No. <laughs> I think it's a pretty hard no. 
Sponsored by gun manufacturer Mossberg. I think in general, like, it was kind of long. He's, he, I think he didn't maybe, I think he went, has a very strong idea of what he said in the interview, but maybe not like the way he came off in the fucking part that was published that we saw. And at the end of the day, honestly, it just kind of makes me look like, I kind of like think he looks like a dumbass for getting set up like this like i don't know why he would have agreed to this yeah. interview as soon as i saw it i was just like dude this is like there's no way this is gonna look good there's no way it's gonna advance your like not that i'm you know i'm not telling anyone what to do and definitely like it's his fight and everything but it's it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me it so they're an but, they're they're an organization which shows nothing but contempt for black people uh, look at Philando Castile. Yeah. No one defended his right to own a gun and uh, be armed when he was killed. What I think Alton Sterling's killer was just, like, let off without any criminal charges today, I think. I think Alton Sterling oh. was also a gun owner. So, yeah. yeah I mean, great. It's just you don't need to look that deep to see that the NRA would not really just in good faith allow you to access their platform or even that you could really do much good using their platform is kind of my take on it so his apology fell flat to me because just like you can't not have known how this was going to turn up all right let's move on there to the literacy corner this is a new segment where we recommend books that we're reading or read recently. <laughs> well, I just finished a book by, I think he writes for uh, Vanity Fair, uh, Nick Bilton. And this book is called American Kingpin, The Epic Hunt for the Criminal Mastermind Behind the Silk Road. This was the story of Ross Ulbricht, who called himself the Dread Pirate Roberts, referencing the Princess Bride. And he started this website called The Silk Road, which many of our listeners have heard of this story. He started a website where people could sell and buy drugs, and essentially the eBay or Craigslist of drugs. But it soon grew to include hits, and I mean, these are literal murders, organs being sold, just any guns any sort of bizarre item that people could want and ross ulbrich was driven by a love of libertarian philosophy and this has gone through extensively in the book and it's a real thriller it's kind of a breaking bad-esque certainly it's a kid from texas starting this insane website and it, it Definitely parallels uh, Nick Bilton's other book, which was called Hatching Twitter, which told that Silicon Valley story. So this is kind of American Kingpin. This is kind of a really different kind of Silicon Valley story. The Silk Road quickly ballooned into a $1.2 billion business. And this book tells the story of how this guy became a kingpin. And it's really fucking good. I, I would recommend it to anyone who likes just a, a good true crime story. And it tells it from multiple perspectives. It's got the DEA and various other FBI agencies and dirty cops. And there's there's a whole bunch. And um, 
you know, other people and hackers. And the central character is a really interesting guy. Did you know anything about the Silk Road back in the day when it was big? Dude, some people from my college, these, like, dipshit frat bros at one of the racist frats, got a shitload of, like, Molly delivered to their frat house off of, like, the Silk Road. Apparently, the cops found out about it, so they set up a sting. And they were like, will you sign for this package? And the kids signed for it, and they just all got, like, I don't know. I don't think they actually got, like, any serious charges, but it was pretty funny. Yeah, they obviously probably more interested in the dealers than the buyers. Yeah, that book was awesome. Let's dive into the pop culture corner and play a clip from the first thing we're going to talk about. This is Armando Iannucci from In the Loop from Veep. He is just a super talented writer-director. This is The Death of Stalin. Let's play some of that. Should you shut the fuck up before you get us both killed? Stalin's dead. He's dead. Stalin is dead! Oh, my God. Our general secretary is lying in a puddle of indignity. Yeah, he's feeling unwell, clearly. I want to make a speech at my father's funeral. Um, no problem. Technically, yes, but practically. When I said no problem, what I meant was no problem. Ignore me. Steve Buscemi, Jeffrey Tambor, you had Jason Isaacs stole the show. He was great. Um, The the accents are chaos, obviously. Like, I think they just didn't have anyone do any particular accent. I'm happy that they didn't because I didn't need to get lost in, like, the... I wasn't asking them to do, like, the Gary Oldman, Winston Churchill, like, get it exact. Like, I think it was more fun. Like, obviously, like, Khrushchev was a lot fatter than Steve Buscemi. Yeah. But Steve Buscemi was, you know, characteristically amazing as Khrushchev. Oh, my God. Incredible. Let's start from the top. What was your first read on this movie when you saw it? So the movie obviously takes place, you know, after the death of Stalin. So it takes a lot of, like, true stories. You know, spoiler alert, Stalin dies in this movie, and he lies in his own... Yeah, that's one of the first scenes. He lies (laughs) in his own piss because people were too scared to, like, go in or move him because he was... You know, known to be such a brutal figure and highly arbitrary in the violence that he dealed out. And I think the arbitrariness and the kind of rules following and like excessive bureaucracy that marked the Stalinist period are very well represented here. And just fear, utter fear. Everyone feared him so much. That was evident just in all of the interactions. It was so like how they had to sit there while he watched a John Wayne movie. Yeah. The night before he died. Uh, apparently that was something he did a lot. And- Mao, t- Mao wanted to watch like Chinese gangster movies all night. <laughs> yeah, something about dictators and, uh, uh, and like movies. I don't know. The great thing about that scene was each individual like lieutenant of Stalin coming in and like noticing, going near him to like, oh, is he okay? And then just like, oh, he's just piss. <laughs> <laughs> great just like physical uh comedy from a bunch of like older men and the guy who played um 
what Laverenti Beria, the head of yeah, the Beria. He was so great. Yeah, he was just detestable yeah, villain. Yeah, and you know all their like people were like, oh, is this such a such funny subject matter? You know, Stalinist Russia is pretty brutal, but it's funny. It, it's amazing how they don't compromise. Like Laverenti Beria is ruthless and evil. I mean, he's someone who committed like serial rape and murder as head of the secret police under Stalinist Russia. And they, you know, you get to see this come up and, you know, there's no spoilers because it's all history. So, uh, Laver- yeah, Laverenti Berry, he's played masterfully by uh, Simon Russell Beale. And Yanucci did such a good job of using his traditional shtick, which is that like, government is mostly made up of people trying to cover their own ass, <laughs> which is definitely the theme of like this whole fucking thing they're not only trying to cover their own asses but also trying to assert themselves and obviously maneuver to seize power after the death of stalin but and it's it's funny dan how quickly that sets in right the sort of jostling for power between these bumbling people like khrushchev and uh, jeffrey tambor's characters yorgi melenkov who was very loyal to stalin and just the formalities that they have to go through <laughs> while simultaneously engaging in, like, subterfuge, sort of, like, office politics stuff. There there were lots of old man brawls, <laughs> like, these middle-aged to older men, yeah, like, I scuffling mean... and shit. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I did think there were some, like, interesting political questions people had. Like, there was obviously, like, oh, you're owning P- Putin if you go see The Death of Stalin because Russia banned the film or something. Or they're oh, like, right. this is a commentary on Trump or a commentary on Russia. And I'm like, you don't have to do this to like literally everything. But uh, the funniest one was they were considering like apparently some places they disappeared like Jeffrey Tambor from the movie poster. Right, because of his recent firing from Transparent on Amazon, which they still haven't released any details of. I'm kind of curious what exactly it was, because I definitely like that show. Yeah, because he had like somewhat some sexual harassment allegations, apparently. Right, but I guess his claim now is he didn't get to tell the whole side of his uh, his side of the story. But at the same time, though, if like multiple people are saying you made them super <laughs> uncomfortable, like... I don't know. Maybe you work on a different yeah, show. Yeah, I also don't need to hear your side of the story always. But I, I thought it was funny because Stalin disappeared people too <laughs> back in the day. You know, there's like famous photos that were like doctored to remove political opponents who had been disappeared from the record. And it's like this big free world, like fear of, you know, 1984 style, like Orwellian just propaganda well, I think it really fit in with what Iannucci does best. Like, he obviously created and ran the first, I think, five seasons of Veep. And what's so great about Veep is it doesn't show these people, like, the House of Cards style, that they're, like, master operators, that they're, like, they're all run on, like, petty yeah. rivalries and, like, vindictiveness and, like, shame and embarrassment like there's no yeah dignity and it also is very useful for if you know people who are like too into what like west wing where everyone has such lofty moral ideals and they're all like the best people for the job and shit then yanucci's a healthy dose of like reality to present a more realistic view of like the way governments work and i do think at the end of the day he is a critic of governments you don't see any like bullshit in this movie like you know, sort of like what we said about Young Marx. You know, any bullshit like this is because they tried to, you know, have equality for everybody and egalitarianism. And this is what you get if you try to make the world a better place. Right. It was completely devoid of those sort of moralistic stances. 
and more or less showed I, I mean, every character, including Stalin's son, they were all just... Yeah! They were just idiots. They weren't driven by, like, a desire to, like... Yeah, they were spoiled children. ...save Russia. Yeah, and even Khrushchev, who succeeds, the film does a terrific thing at the end. And this isn't, like, a spoiler, because this is, like, history. Right? They show, like, another uh, guy looking down at Khrushchev, and they're basically like, yeah, he was overthrown, too. So, like, it just... Shit just repeats itself. Yeah, but they also treated Khrushchev pretty honestly, I think. Like, they really kind of brought to the forefront that he did want reform, and people do see him as a reformer. It's also worth mentioning that Khrushchev, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, pretty much, like, was able to partially talk JFK down from, like, nuking the Earth just to, like, score points back home. You know, I guess the functional equivalent of, like, fucking nuking the world to own the Republicans, I guess. But... I also really loved uh, Yorgi Zhukov in this movie, uh, played by Jason Isaacs, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, I think it was such an amazing repositioning of right-wing militarism, because Zhukov is basically the guy who won World War II for the Soviet Union, which is like, you know, the greatest military victory, obviously. He's just so over the top and like militaristic. It has just, he really did have like all those insane medals on his chest, like you saw. Right, he was kind of the alpha dog. Yeah, amongst all these, like, sniveling cowards. <laughs> so, we definitely recommend this movie, and let's talk about something that's fucking sucks next. Undercover Boss <laughs> is a TV show on CBS. <laughs> oh, yeah, and also, that was uh, round two of our communist movie series, and we're going to watch Reds for the next episode. Yeah, we're turning it back. So, Undercover Boss... It's on CBS. It's this <laughs> sort of like Sunday night reality show supposed to be kind of inspiring where the CEOs go and they work amongst the workers and they see what it's like to be a worker at their own company. And to be honest with you, it's unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's your read on this? It definitely cr triggers my sense of class rage because every episode is either, like, good redistribution or, like, the boss gets pissed off and fires a shitload of people. <laughs> you know, I think Trump has the trademark on the firings, so Undercover Boss should uh, watch their back. It's been around for how many seasons now? A very successful show. I mean, I feel like it's been on for, like, five or ten years. It's had eight seasons, oh, like over 100 episodes. So there's some bizarre episodes. There was I watched one recently. It was the CEO, I guess, of Models, like the sports goods store. And just all of his workers told him the biggest problem they have is like, they're like we don't make enough money in our jobs. He interviewed like a truck driver and he interviewed like someone who worked retail and stuff. And they were just like, we don't make enough money. The woman who worked retail actually said she was living in a homeless shelter. And the CEO was like crying and hugging her. <laughs> Like, she was, like, comforting him because he was so upset that he had to realize that, like, people who work for him, like, couldn't afford housing. I think it was in D.C., actually. Oh, I'm so sorry that he, you realized that you're, like, a fucking craven asshole. Oh, yeah. There was also an episode where the boss fired, like, uh, one of his servers for not wearing, like, a revealing enough bikini top. <laughs> and they played the clip. I gotta be honest with you, I had a pretty disappointing experience. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, there was uh, probably a few things that kind of jumped out, and I want to share those with you. Okay. One was 
bikini top, of course. Mm-hmm. Right? You are supposed to be wearing a bikini. I just chose not to since we're on TV. I'd like to wear a t-shirt instead. You know, it's a big bummer from my, my point uh-huh. of view. You know, I, I think you're a great person, but you're not right for bikinis. It was clear to me that day. So, I'm sorry, Jessica. It's not working out. Today's your last day. I'm so mad right now. <laughs> you know, hey, there's a dress code at Hooters. You gotta follow it. I guess so. Uh, apparently there's also a Hooters episode of Undercover Bosses, which I also only, like, shudder to imagine. <laughs> I mean, I guess, granted, the show could be a lot darker. But you had a savings, Grace. You liked HBO's Barry. God, this Bill Hader show, he's uh, the creator and star of Barry, was incredible. Highly recommend it. It stars Bill Hader as this depressed-as-fuck hitman. And he goes to L.A. and he's extremely just lost in his life. And his crime boss is played by Steven Root, who you know from Get Out from, uh, I think it was Office Space, right? He's a crime boss who sets him up on this hit in L.A. and then he stumbles into like this acting class and just like wanders onto the stage. And suddenly he like discovers his like love of the theater and uh, how they read, like, movie monologues in L.A. So he does, like, a scene from True Romance with the guy he's supposed to kill. And, yeah, it just gets uh, weirder from there. And Henry Winkler is so funny as the acting teacher. And there's all these, like, really, like, close-up shots of Henry Winkler doing these, like, absurd, like, kind of inspirational, like, acting teacher moments. And the show definitely goes in a lot of directions that you wouldn't expect it to. And... Of, like, Saturday Night Live in the last, like, couple of decades, I think, like, Bill Hader's definitely top five, at least. Definitely uh, really uh, hit a home run with this show. I think it's also produced by Alec Berg, who worked on Silicon Valley and Seinfeld. So, I was very impressed, and I, I really can't wait to see what uh, what happens in the season. Uh, it's That's Barry. It just captures that, like, bleakness of starting out in something and like trying to like find yourself like publicly it, it was uh it was great the final thing in this episode you know it's story time this story sam and i were both there so I, maybe this is like a co-story but we were at a mongolian barbecue restaurant on a, one of our breaks from college and this is a place where you serve yourself. It's, you know, there's the quantities are large. It is not a place of romance. It's not a place of, like, sexuality. We have to go into it for the listeners about the Mongolian. I don't think everyone has these. Like, um, it's down the street from my parents' house, <laughs> which is not a good sign. It's like, it's like a few miles, like, away, you know, kind of out there. But yeah, it's in between, it, like, the town and the mall. Yeah, <laughs> between the mall that's also on my street. And you basically go up to the counter to get a refrigerated buffet. There's meat and veggies and stuff. It's, like, a shitty version of, like, Stir Crazy or some other, like, I, I guess, like, stir-fry restaurant where you choose your ingredients. And you just put it on a plate, and then, like, the guy silently will, like, just cook the shit for you on this, like, massive, I guess, kind of like a hibachi grill, but it's circular. <laughs> 
know. It's like a sweaty and hot experience. There's like the food is always like a little, you know, it's been sitting there for a minute or two. Just like the shrimp always looks like a little, a little lonely or like uh, a little lost. Oh, and they kept refilling our ginger ales and charged us <laughs> every single time. I'm still fucking mad about that. There's no, like, I spent like $45 on fucking ginger ale during that stupid meal because he kept refilling it without saying anything. We haven't been back since, but you know that was the that was the distress part of the story. So this these two girls are sitting and enjoying their meal behind us, and we turn and suddenly. There's this like middle-aged man at their table looking at them. He's not he's and... not good looking. He's not good looking. He has no. like his hair is not good. It's like not there really. Like oh, he has no. shaved the rest. He's cute cue ball. He's like a chubby, bald, like man with like big chubby cheeks. He's like I don't know, his, his complexion's a little, you know, like old weather. Yeah, he's in I his forties. Yeah, he's older. <laughs> he's not a good-looking like middle-aged. What like you know, forty to forties to sixties. If you're a white man, obviously people are like you know, all your shit is marketed towards you, and all, and you have this supreme position in society. But you're not, you're not getting any dates. <laughs> like <laughs> you're not like wanted in society. So this guy's standing over these two girls, and we just hear him. Literally, these are the words he says to them. I just got to tell you too, you're gorgeous. <laughs> you're you're gorgeous. gorgeous. He said it multiple times and they just, they were like, thank you. Like, Thanks. okay. Like, what? I, I think he like had to give up cause he got the cold shoulder from them and he was just kind of like, yeah, I just, I just wanted to say you're gorgeous. And then if I don't do it now, I'm going to pitch myself. If I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. He talked about it. He had to like work himself up. It was just like, I think we just realized maybe we were like, what we were like 20 or something at the time. We probably just realized that I, I guess for me, I was like, damn, the world is like a big and fucking bleak place. Like you never know when you might just be like fucking standing up from your meal to go talk to like the random Jersey girl at the fucking cons Mongolian barbecue and just trying to shoot your shot. That might be you soon. Who knows? Oh, not to mention we were high as hell and la <laughs> like audibly laughing at this man getting shut down. <laughs> oh man. How do you, the guy said to these two girls, you're gorgeous. I wouldn't do that in a million years. Like, they, are you crazy? Well, I mean, you could, I'm not saying like you shouldn't like talk to someone you find attractive, but I think but maybe. But in the Mongolian barbecue. <laughs> I think, yeah, maybe like getting down on one knee and like fucking, he was kind of like stooping or kneeling. I couldn't really see because I was trying to hide the fact that I was laughing my ass off. But he was kind of like making this fucking entreatise to these poor fucking ladies. <laughs> and he was just like, please, like, I wanted to tell you I'm that you're gorgeous for like 15 minutes. And now I'm going to do it. It was just so, it was so bleak. So not only was he not content to have four plates of extra spicy beef, <laughs> the he had to... Shrimp. He had to give himself the confidence booster. Much like I discussed with Barry, 
where Bill Hader stumbles into the acting class and he really realizes how putting himself out there makes him feel better. So maybe <laughs> this you're gorgeous, man, maybe he felt better after this. I don't know, but then that kind of makes me think about how, like, cat callers are, like, just, they don't actually, you know, think that the woman who they cat call will be attracted to them or swayed by their words. They're just, like, doing it to prove themselves, their masculinity to, like, their friends and to the woman and stuff. So, I don't know if I can defend that behavior, but... No, I mean, way, obviously, we, we, we did not, uh, we did not <laughs> side in this situation. You're gorgeous, man. Um, and... You're gorgeous uh, in the era of Me Too. I don't think that would have happened. But, no, I, I'm sure that shit happens, uh, unfortunately. Uh, people in Mongolian barbecue restaurants, uh, they get a little excited. You know, it's the it's the beef. Yeah. Luckily, it didn't turn into any kind of situation that we could see. So we were justified in just, like, sitting there and laughing instead of, like, pointing it out. But <laughs> either way... Uh, oh, we, we, we've been laughing about this for six years at this point. It's sort of a Jersey story, but it's in Rockland County, New York, which is like, we live right around there, not to dox ourselves. So if you go there, you have to go uh, tell the most gorgeous woman there that she's gorgeous. It's the house rule. And that'll do it for the plunge for this week. I'm Dan Spaventa. Listen to me on SiriusXM. Channel 103, The Craig Ferguson Show, is a show I produce weeknights, 6 p.m. And I uh, co-host the wrap-up show for that show. That's on Saturdays at 11 a.m. on Channel 103. And I also am on Twitter at Spaventacular. S-P-A-V-E-N-T-A-C-U-L-A-R. I'm at Wagstank at W-A-G-S-T-A-N-K on Twitter. And yeah, that's it. See ya. Scarring clothes the sky